Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. And this is your, well, it's the latest episode of Cases and Controversies. Is it a sneak peek? Is it a deep dive? We don't know, but... Even though the justices postponed the argument session that was supposed to start this week, they did issue four opinions on Monday on some important topics. So we're going to recap those for you. But first, let's give an update on the latest coronavirus impacts at the court. Well, Jordan, even the opinions were impacted by the virus, or at least the way that they were handed down. The justices handed down Monday's opinions electronically without taking the bench. And that was the first time that they'd done that since 2000 in Bush versus Gore. The court didn't issue the opinions all at once. Instead, it released them in several minute intervals, much as if the justices were announcing them from the bench. Now, the Supreme Court is also getting $500,000 in funding in the new $2 trillion stimulus bill, and that will be used to ensure that the court's employees can work remotely. We also learned that in last Friday's conference on March 20th, Chief Justice Roberts ran a conference call from the court for the court's private conference, and the justices called in. So we learned that they've been working from home sort of like the rest of us have. And as of this recording on March 26th, the March arguments are still postponed and the April arguments are still on schedule. But we'll see if either of those two things hold in this situation that seems to be changing every day. So, the opinions. Kimberly, you want to kick us off with the Comcast case? Sure. So, Comcast versus National Association of African American Owned Media is a closely watched race discrimination case on what plaintiffs must allege in order to bring a suit under a 1966 civil rights statute that guarantees that all persons get the same right to make and enforce contracts as those enjoyed by white citizens. Specifically, the question was whether the plaintiffs had to allege that race was the but-for cause of the adverse decision, or if they can simply allege that race was a motivating factor. So let's go back to 1L Torts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Under the but-for causation standard, a plaintiff must allege that the decision would have been different but for the plaintiff's race. And under the motivating factor standard, the plaintiff needs only to allege that race was one factor in the adverse decision. Now, the case got a lot of attention from civil rights groups since it could make it impossible to bring some discrimination suits. But in a unanimous decision, the court said that it is, quote, textbook tort law that a plaintiff seeking redress from a defendant's legal wrong typically must prove but-for causation and that there was no reason for the court to depart from that general background rule here. Now, the plaintiffs here had stepped back their arguments during oral argument in this case, saying that the motivating factor standard only applied at the pleading stage before there was any discovery, but to to prevail, the plaintiffs would ultimately have to prove but for causation. Now, the court rejected that argument too, and the majority opinion was written by Justice Gorsuch, his second of the term, and this line, rejecting the plaintiff's alternative position, I just thought was really classic Gorsuch. Let's hear it. To accept the plaintiff's invitation to consult, tinker with, and even engraft a test from a modern statute onto an old one would thus require more than a little judicial adventurism and look a good deal more like amending a law than interpreting one. Yeah, that's pretty good. And all the justices joined that, or most of them did. They did. Justice Ginsburg wrote a concurring opinion, um, but she agreed with the result uh, that but for causation was required. You think she just didn't want to join that line because it just wasn't her style? <laughs> she loves judicial adventurism. The second case we'll talk about, Allen against Cooper. This case involves copyright law and a pirate ship, so that's fun. More specifically, the case dealt with whether copyright owners can sue states for infringement. 
In the 1990s, a marine salvage company discovered the shipwreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge, the pirate Blackbeard's flagship, off the coast of North Carolina. A videographer, Frederick Allen, documented the recovery operation over the years. He registered copyrights in his works, but North Carolina published some of his work and he sued the state for infringement. The state claimed it was immune from suit under state sovereign immunity, but Allen said that the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act of 1990... Ah, the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act. Just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, wow. Well-known statute. Yep. Well, we're about to learn a little bit more about it now for a few seconds, and then everyone can forget it. Uh, Well, actually, you might as well forget it for reasons that you'll see in a little bit, so that was a good setup. Um, So he said that law, whatever it's called, uh, took away state immunity for copyright infringement. Uh, There was a previous Supreme Court case from 1999 called Florida Prepaid, where the justices dealt with a similar situation but involving patent infringement. In that Florida case, uh, Congress had passed a law trying to take away state immunity for patent infringement claims. But in that Florida patent case, the Supreme Court ruled for the state, saying that Congress had failed to identify a pattern of unconstitutional patent infringement when it enacted a law. So here we are now in this pirate case, and the question is whether the situation is different for state immunity from copyright claims than it was for patent claims. And in an opinion by Justice Kagan, the court said, no, the state wins here too. Like in the patent situation, Kagan wrote, Congress also lacked a valid constitutional basis in trying to abrogate state copyright immunity with the 1990 copyright law. The copyright law in this case and the patent law in the previous case were basically the same. So Kagan said this case could only come out differently if Congress was responding to materially stronger evidence of infringement here. It wasn't, so the state wins. Uh, But Kagan did point out that there are ways for Congress to hold states accountable if it wants by creating a better legislative record. And she has a decent line for her part in this case too, where she wrote, even while respecting constitutional limits, uh, referring to Congress, it can bring digital blackbeards to justice. So um, <laughs> listeners can decide whether they prefer her style to Gorsuch's or any of the other justices. Uh, we do not have an opinion about that on the Case and Controversies podcast. Um, So Kagan's opinion was, for the most part, unanimous, with Thomas concurring partially and Breyer and Ginsburg concurring in the judgment. The third case we'll talk about is one of the many immigration disputes this term. Right. So at issue here in Guillermo Las Piero versus Barr is whether Article Three courts can review certain immigration decisions made by immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals, which are both part of the executive branch. Now, federal law limits judicial review to constitutional questions and questions of law. The issue here is whether that includes the application of law to undisputed facts. So here, Pablo Guillermo Lasparilla and Ruben Ovale were lawful permanent residents who were deported after drug convictions. The law related to their cases subsequently changed, and both men asked that their cases be reopened. Their claims were rejected, and the lower court here said it didn't have jurisdiction to review those decisions. It said the application of law to facts wasn't a question of law subject to judicial review. But in a 7-2 ruling written by Justice Breyer, the court relied on the strong presumption of judicial review of agency actions to say that lower courts can hear these kinds of claims. In dissent, Justices Thomas and Alito said that the court effectively overruled Congress's limits on judicial review. As you mentioned, there are an unusually high number of immigration cases that the court is considering this term, including two others that focus on judicial review. 
So the decision here signals that the justices may be open to allowing judicial review in those cases as well. So our last opinion is insane. Kaler against Kansas, the insanity defense, last but not least. So the Supreme Court took up James Kaler's case to decide whether states can abolish the insanity defense. A pretty big question, right? Well, uh, the court didn't answer that big question, but in another opinion by Justice Kagan, the court did say that Kansas didn't abolish the defense and that its scheme complies with due process. In her opinion, Kagan noted two different types of insanity defenses, a cognitive incapacity and moral incapacity. The cognitive incapacity test asks whether a defendant was able to understand what he was doing when he committed a crime. The moral incapacity test asks whether a defendant's illness left him unable to distinguish right from wrong with respect to his criminal conduct. Kansas only lets defendants raise the cognitive issue, not the moral issue. So James Kaler, charged with quadruple murder, argued that he was effectively barred from raising a true insanity defense as it's been traditionally understood. But Kagan, in a 6-3 opinion, here joined by the five Republican appointees, said Kansas does allow an insanity defense. It just doesn't allow the type of insanity defense that Kaler wants. She noted that a ruling for him would have meant striking down some 20 state laws currently on the books. So the court held that Kansas's scheme does not violate due process. Now, Justice Breyer wrote a fairly lengthy dissent, joined by Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. He said that schemes like the one in Kansas really do essentially bar what's been traditionally thought of as an insanity defense, and that the issue of moral culpability is a foundational one that states shouldn't be able to do away with. He gives a memorable example in his dissent of why he thinks a scheme like the one in Kansas is wrong. He says, take two defendants. Defendant one shoots the victim, but thinks the victim is a dog. Defendant two shoots the victim, but says the dog told him to do it. Breyer says both defendants should be able to mount insanity defenses, but in a state like Kansas, only the first one can be acquitted. And he and the dissenters think that that's a bad thing. So Wait, I don't know. I talk to my cat all the time. My cat tells me to do stuff all the time. I don't know if it's different for cats than for dogs, so we'll see. Oh, okay. Well, maybe maybe the Supreme Court will weigh in on that sometime soon. Almost definitely. Well, we are recording this episode on Thursday, March 26th, which is Justice O'Connor's 90th birthday. Happy uh, birthday. I'm sure she listens. Birthday. Regular cases and controversies listener. The justices will hold their private meeting tomorrow. Presumably, they'll do it electronically as before, and will likely get orders on Monday and possibly opinions. Until then, you can stay on top of all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Dot com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay safe. Did I say stay safe? Stay safe. Say I can't say it. Stay safe. <laughs> hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.